Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. I'm Andrea Askowitz, and this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. And I'm Allison Langer. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. And by art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. Today on our show, we're talking about writing a story while you're still living it. Often, we write stories after we've had some distance, which gives us perspective. This happened, and this is what I've learned. You know, I, as I just said that, it made me think, like, that is so what you're doing right now. It, it's, it is, right? You mean when I'm writing about my mom in class? Yes. Like, lately in class, you've been writing about your mom a lot. And I'm, yeah. It's very much something that you're going through right now without much perspective. True. It's harder to do because it's like I'm still living the situation. So so just a little background. You've written about this on your Medium page, your 50 weeks, your essay challenge that you did that you've just now completed. And your final story was about what you're going through now with your mom and her cancer. Well, what I, I wrote 50 essays in 50 weeks. It's something. It's a huge thing. Some of them were about what I'm going through right now. And it is harder to do because I didn't have perspective. There was something about, there was something about it that, well, one of the things that it forced me to do was be very immediate. And, um, and I think that's, Allison, what you liked about some of the stories. It's like, this is exactly what's going on right now. So they were raw and real. Yeah. So I felt like that. I was there with you. Like, I didn't feel like you had time to go, oh, maybe people don't care about this. Or maybe I shouldn't be writing about this. It was just, you told the story and I felt like I was there. And I did make meaning out of each story. But I do think that probably with more time and more perspective, I I think the stories may be better. I don't know. I no. I love the details that you get that we remember. We as writers um, and storytellers remember more in the moment. So I know that they say, oh, if you're not remembering it and it's been 10 years and it maybe those details don't matter. And I actually agree with that. I don't. I don't because I have a bad memory. And if I'm writing about something now, I'm going to be able to tell you a conversation. Like when I'm writing about my son and things that I'm going through with him and his like ADHD and all that kind of nonsense or whatever, I can tell you exactly what happened. I can give you a real life or a detail. I will for sure forget. But I bet you, and students ask this all the time, but I bet you that if you started writing a story that happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and you started writing it, the act of writing it helps you remember the details that you need. That well, always happens. I know you say that a lot, and it's true for the most part. And maybe it's the, maybe it's true. It's only the details that you need. But yeah. what I love about what you're telling now is the details that I don't need feel like a more intimate conversation. <laughs> the details that you don't need. Thanks. All of my stories okay. are on writingclassradio.com on our blog. Thank you for the plug. Yeah. So there's two ways to think about writing a story, and one is to think about it in the past to bring meaning to something that happened in the past. But what we're doing today on this episode is we're bringing you a story from a narrator who is living the story she's telling. Andrea met Camille Flazia Rajo at Lip Service, which is a night of true stories. 
Andrea started this storytelling show, Lip Service, in 2006 and produced it for nine years. And it's still going strong under the leadership of the Miami Book Fair. Three of our students performed in their latest show. I saw Camille read a version of the story we bring you today. I was so taken by it and by her. She came out on stage and brought us into her world. But wait, she what told was... us specific details about what it was like to be in a wheelchair, to be paralyzed from the waist down. And I never heard those details before. And I and she just told them with like with precision. The entire audience was wrapped. Her story and this episode is about how to write a story while you're still living it. Yeah. Okay. Good. Back after the break. I'm Allison Langer, and every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time, I host First Draft. It's a class, kind of, because you'll get a little bit of instruction, but mostly it's a group where you come together with other writers online, write to a prompt and share what you wrote. It's the only way to get better. Come join me. Check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com or go to patreon.com slash writingclassradio to learn more. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. We're back. You're listening to Writing Class Radio. This is Andrea. Up next is a story by Camille Flazi Arajo. Why am I here? The first time I see Dr. H, it's been seven years since my car accident. On the table between us is a four-inch file containing the story of my 37 years of life. A story I've told to six therapists before him. How I lost my dad at age seven, that I've been married and divorced three times, with men I never really loved, gap fillers for the times I couldn't find reasons to love myself, the history of my 11 years working as a police officer. Details of the accident are in there too. I doubt he's read through all my shit. Maybe he skimmed through the parts regarding the crash, and I wonder if he's disappointed by how pathetic the story is for a cop. No gunshot wound, no car chase. While patrolling during my graveyard shift, the rear tire of my police car hit a curb. I lost control and hit a tree, instantly paralyzed from the waist down. Between us is a large octagonal coffee table with my clinical history from the point of view of others. In my wheelchair facing Dr. H and the carved wooden cuckoo clock that hangs above him, I sit arms and legs crossed, ready to be sent home with a prescription for an antidepressant I'll never take. I'm not depressed. I'm exhausted. In the weeks leading up to this appointment, I've been having episodes. Angry conversations with God for not letting me die. I'm not suicidal, but I don't understand why I'm still here. I'm sure Dr. H's questions are predictable and I have all my canned answers ready. But he asks, 
Why did you become a cop? This is not a question I've prepared for, and I'm not telling this stranger the truth, that I wanted to work for the FBI, but I couldn't afford law school. I was afraid the school loans would suffocate me beyond the pleasure of wearing a federal blue jacket with a yellow logo on it. So I settled as a county cop. I say instead, I was a dispatcher for six years. It seemed like the logical thing to do. He ignores that I haven't actually answered his question and then says, I'm interested in your experience as a female in the force. Snitch, self-absorbed, new meat, visceral, man-eater are a few of the words that come to me as various incidents flash in my mind. But I answer, I play the game. He asks, what's the difference between a dispatcher and a 911 operator? Who cares? But I dutifully explain it to him. His questions make me feel uneasy, completely out of control. This goes on for two hours. Questions, deflections. I'm annoyed and guarded, but Dr. H is not only persistent, he's tender. He says, after losing my entire platoon in Vietnam, I spent a year at Walter Reed in a full body cast. I still don't have full motion in my right shoulder. The soldier in the bed next to me cracked jokes all the time. I couldn't see him until I was able to sit up. He had stumps for arms and legs. I'm picturing the scene, the man with stumps, Dr. H in a body cast, more paralyzed than me. When he asks, what was the worst part in the hospital? Not dying. I blurt out my answer and regret it immediately. He pinches the thick file and says, it's been a long road. He has read through it all. He says, tell me about your hospital stay. Start from the beginning. I decide to be straightforward, not entirely because I want to, but because the cuckoo clock reminds me I will soon need to pee in my bed with a catheter. Even after being on a chair for seven years, I hadn't mastered the art of dressing and undressing to stick the catheter up my urethra in a public bathroom. I was in the hospital for six months, I start. I broke a total of 23 bones, including 19 ribs, and perforated my left lung. When my right lung gave out as well, they induced me into a six-week coma. I almost died five different times, but they kept bringing me back. When I moved to inpatient rehab, I was in a 10 by 10 quarter of a room divided by dingy blue curtains that separated me from three other roommates. None of them were fighting to survive with each breath they took. I immediately resented them for that. The night I got there, a very pregnant nurse introduced herself to me, my mom and my boyfriend. We'd been dating for two months. Just hours before the accident, we had decided to become exclusive. Before closing my privacy curtain on his face, the nurse said to him, you need to leave now, I'm going to do her bowel movement. The nurse flipped me onto my left side and then showed my mom the process of fecal evacuation. Step one, glove up your dominant hand. Step two, apply lube to gloved index finger. 
Step 3. Insert index finger in her anus all the way to her rectum. Step 4. Circulate the finger counterclockwise to stimulate the sympathetic nerves. Step 5. Wait for the feces to come out onto your hand. Step 6. Remove hand. Step 7. Dispose glove. Step 8. Re-glove. Step 9. Repeat. When they served dinner, I could hear my roommates gripe about eating while enduring the smell of my shit. Also fresh out of the oven. Dr. H smiles. He leans back in his chair. I'm not used to therapists getting my humor. I keep talking. My first shower was even worse. I had been lying down for months. Sitting up was a shock. I couldn't maintain stable blood pressure. I kept fainting and panicking. I'd get water in my tracheotomy tube and drown. But the worst part was seeing myself in the bathroom mirror. My ribs bulged out of my thorax. I had large bandages on my back covering the holes left by chest tubes. The wide silicone trach looked like a PVC pipe. My cheeks were sunken in and I had large black circles under my eyes. The large amount of steroids used to save my lungs made me gain and lose 60 pounds. I used to run on the beach. My legs were my best feature. Now they were atrophied and doll-like. They also had thick red stretch marks that ran from my hips all the way to my feet. The image I saw looked nothing like the old me. Young, healthy, athletic, strong. I felt just as dead as the lower half of my body. Not one bit moved by my shattered vanity, Dr. H asks, are you still with the boyfriend? He married my ex-best friend. Did they tell you they got together? She did, during one of the times my tracheal walls were collapsing on themselves. He was marriage material, but nothing I lost sleep over. He exhales loudly. I dig both my thumbnails into my index fingers, expecting him to do what the others before him have done, what I have done for 37 years, to avoid dealing with all my crap. Look the other way. Then the question comes, why are you really here, Camille? I'm not good at life in general, and I've only gotten worse since the accident. Dr. H leans in. You're not answering my question. By now, I don't want him to dismiss me. I want to give him the answer he's looking for. It's also the answer I'm looking for. I think I'm still mad about my accident. Is that all you're mad about? I answer no. He smiles again, and it only took you two hours and 15 minutes to admit that. He had been watching the time after all. I saw Dr. H for three years. He slowly impatiently chiseled through my cynicism and fear. I recognized in his persistence something of myself. Though I had been angry about the accident, I was more angry about what the accident had exposed, the ways in which, while able-bodied, I had settled, from my plan B career to the marriages out of convenience. Now that my body is broken, I refuse to accept that this is the end of my story.
wasted years with worry and with the fear that my life's going Wow. Uh, there are so many points in this story where I just felt like punched in the gut. This woman took us in and she said, don't feel sorry for me. That I never got that at all. But she's saying, this is what my life looks like. And this is how I'm dealing with it. The way she used Hot Topic cold prose. It's a what is it? Is it a device? I don't want to call it a device, but it's just a way of telling a story where in a really emotional moment, the storyteller, instead of using florid language, just uses very simple kind of reporting-like language. And the most uh, the most devastating moment for me in this story is the fecal evacuation. It's a hot topic. Yeah. It's so intimate. It's so scary. Yeah, the way she, she used just, the steps. Right. Step one. Right. Step two. So well done. Ah, yeah. excellent. I also want to talk about how we pushed her in the editing to be more vulnerable. I asked her, like, okay, at the very beginning of the story, like, what are you afraid of? Like, why did you become a cop instead of becoming an FBI agent? It was in the story already. And I wanted her to tell us the real emotional reason. And she did. She brought that in. She brought in the her fear of of all the debt. Like she just she didn't have the courage to go for what she wanted. And she told this on the stage, you mean? Or no, you worked with her this afterwards? Was a, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, yeah. this this came out in the version that we just heard. And um and I wanted to know more about whether or not she was heartbroken by the boyfriend running off with the best friend. And and I loved what she added, which was like, I didn't lose sleep over it. He was marriage material, but I didn't lose sleep over it. So I was getting her, I wanted her to show us in what ways did she live half-assed. Yeah, absolutely. And those were the ways. It's interesting because when the story came in, like you said, oh my God, I met this great woman and her story was so great. And when she sent us the piece, um, when I read it, I thought, oh, wow, I loved it too. Mm -hmm. And I also remember thinking something is missing here. Something is not being said that I want to know more of. And so when we started working together on all this and, and you started saying, I want to know more about what you left out of your life, like what you weren't doing well what you were scared to do. And let's really talk about that. Because although the situation is shit, it sucks. A story needs more than just a situation, right? But the thing about what we're talking about today is that because she is still in it, it was hard for her to look back and give us perspective. She can't show us that she's gone on to now do this all these great things because she's still she hasn't really moved forward from this yet. And she's working her way forward. And that's what I thought she did really well in this story with this ending, is she's ending it with a promise. What she learned is that she lived while able-bodied half-assed. And what she's not going to do anymore is live that way. I refuse to let this be the end of my story. That's it. I'm dealing with a lot of shit. But you know what? I'm going to be moving forward in a great way. Yeah. And I believe her because she's so self-reflective, because she's been in therapy three years, because she resisted... And she slowly, slowly, slowly came undone. And she shows us that through the writing. 
it's not just a story about like this bad thing happened and now I'm better but this is a story about this bad thing happened and what I realized through this bad thing is what a failure I was before this bad thing happened right which made us all relate because who in their life hasn't doesn't have like a hundred regrets about what you wish you had done that part of the story was so relatable to me this story has a twist. Yeah. I found out through looking at myself that I used to live totally half-assed before this bad thing happened to me. And I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. Oh, my God. Can so, we just talk? well done. Before we Come finish, I just wanted to say, like, that bathroom mirror scene when she looks at herself was such an effective way to show us what she looks like in a story. And we got it. Oh, my God. The ribs and the chest tubes and, the, you know, the scars and... That's, it's hard to describe yourself in a piece. As a writing um, question, it is very hard. How do you tell the reader, the listener, what you look like? And Camille had this perfect moment where she was looking in the mirror. And then she described her sunken eyes, her doll-like legs, her legs that like he, she lost 60 pounds because of the steroids. And so now she has all these stretch marks. Oh, it was so, yeah. Look in a mirror and describe yourself is a really good technique. That was excellent. <sighs> Thank you, Camille, for this amazing story. Camille Flazi Arajo is a Brazilian-born Miamian mom who started writing in her Snoopy journal at age six. You can find more of Camille's stuff on her Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Camille Flazi Arajo. C A yeah that's hard do it C A M I L E F L O S I A R A U J O we'll put a link to her Facebook page so check her out she's amazing before we go we have a public service announcement for all our writers who have submitted to be on the air we've gotten so many submissions which is awesome but there's one main problem we've seen over and over there's no change in the narrator and there's nothing learned. So this is what we want you to do. Ask yourself, why am I writing this story? What did I learn? How did I change? Or what's my promise? Yeah. That's true. We have writing classes, okay? We have video classes. We offer lots of stuff that can help you. Just Actually, I will just say this, that Allison, specifically Allison, offers writing instruction for hire. So if you want an editor, you can hire Allison. All of this information is at writingclassradio.com or email info at writingclassradio.com. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for the plug. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Camille, for sharing your story. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. The music by Justina Chandler. Additional music by Kevin Miles Wilson and Pottington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by the Launchpad at the University of Miami. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com. If you love this show and enjoy all the extras on our website, hit the support us button and check out the writing classes and publishing insights we are giving our Patreon supporters. Supporters! <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we do. Get on Patreon. We, we want to include you in our classes. So we're going to start giving away some free shit. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday, so look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours?
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have faults. He had the same amount of faults as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.